from 11FS, I'm Simon Taylor and this is Fintech Insider. On today's show, what really is a challenger bank? We draw a line on who is and who isn't in the cool kids club. Alipay, they're coming for us. We investigate their stealth takeover through tourism. And children's debit cards, how do we make sure kids don't go crazy with money and power? Is this a new way for banks to acquire customers? All this and more, it's episode 250 of Fintech Insiders. So we are here in WeWork Oldgate for the news. Uh, today, joining me from 11FS, we have David Breer. David, how are you doing, sir? Very well, thank you. And we have MJ. Hello. Welcome back to the show, MJ. And Aiden. Hello. Hey. And of course, we've got the wonderful Liz Lumley joining us. Liz, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. And Ajit Tripathi, how are you? Brilliant. Nice to see you again. Good, good. All right, well, we're going to not waste any time. We're just going to jump right into this. Um, so we've got a story right here uh, from Banking Technology in saying that fintech companies blast the banks over PSD2 direct access. Angst. There is just <laughs> angst out there. It's I love <laughs> the word angst in a headline. It's all kicking off in regulatory compliance world. I'm a big fan of this story. 60 and growing fintech companies have come together to kind of say, whoa, whoa, whoa. The RTS, the regulatory technical specifications that come along with PSD2 that kind of uh, denote how these APIs are kind of going to work. The guideline, the very guidelines, not right, a strict set of instructions. So you mean the fact that nine banks got together to design the standards hasn't worked for fintech? Oh my well, God, that's that works the, so no, that's, often. No, that's the, that's the, <laughs> obviously, that's the CMA version, but the PSD2 is, is similar in that it's a lot of banks building or it feels like that, a lot of banks building APIs for banks. And f- I guess finally, this felt like it probably inevitable, but a lot of companies come together and said, whoa, 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 this, this is banks controlling access to the data. Um, and what, they, what the main complaint of this uh, group is, is that screen scraping will be banned, i.e., you know, the ability to give your password and username of your bank credentials, and then a service can come in, scrape the data out, and get the transactions and put it into a third-party service. What they're saying is that banks now... You know, that is banned from uh, January next year when PSD2 comes into force and you will have to use the APIs. That gives no transition for businesses that are using that as a business model. It also means banks are the, the gatekeepers of that. So, but, yeah. but, but hang on though, like everybody already has like stuff in the terms and conditions of their internet banking usage to sort of prohibit you giving that out anyway. So like how much more banned can screen scrapers be? But then... Uh, it's, it's, it's ultimate customer need. Customers showing that they, you're not providing the right sort of services for us. We're willing to. We well, they don't care, do they? People don't read the terms and conditions. They don't know that, and you know, and it's not. And there's not. I don't think there's been any losses because of that. The, you know, the companies that are doing it, they know that if they lose that detail, game over. Yeah. So it's not like they're cowboys. We actually spoke with Dave Tong of Money Hub. Uh, he's also the CTO of Momentum Financial. Uh, he wrote a great piece on this. You know, laying it out, saying why this was good and uh, had a bit of a chat with him. I'm joined now by uh, Dave Tong, CTO at Money Hub Enterprise. Thanks very much for joining us, Dave. Thanks, Aidan. Talking about a, a big story in the uh, open banking world this week when uh, a group of 60 or so fintech companies got together to kind of rail against the um, the demands of PSD2 and the closing down of scraping. What is this all about? Yeah, it's uh, it's a bit bizarre, really, because um, you, you've got these group of fintechs, mainly European, actually. There aren't really many UK um, fintechs who've signed it yet. But their main point is, uh, essentially, we want to keep screen scraping because we don't trust banks to provide APIs. 
Um, and so, yeah, they've written a big manifesto and, and that's, that's their thing. So, I, yeah, I wrote an article just because the, the general message of it, I just think is wrong. Essentially, they're saying screen scraping is secure, so let us carry on doing it. And it's, it's just a bit nonsensical, really. Uh, screen scraping is, is a bit of a bodge. It's a, it's a workaround that fintechs have had to, to use because banks haven't provided APIs. And yet, while you know, consumers' details may be protected, no one from a kind of a, a serious technical security background could say that screen scraping is a, is a great secure technology that we should keep on using kind of indefinitely. So, um, so yeah, my, part of my argument has been that, look, let's have a transition from screen scraping to APIs um, and let's work together on that, which, uh, which I think has been happening in the UK. And I think that's an interesting question, isn't it? Because all the dates are quite confusing when PSD2 comes into law in the UK. We've also got the CMA over banking measures. And it feels like, well, is there going to be a kind of API day where all the banks are going to go, aha, and switch on all these glorious APIs and data will flow freely and we'll be able to plug into them and build on them? Or is it going to be more of a, a staggered rollout? You know, it, these businesses that are running on screen scraping, they, you know, how do they plan, I guess, for that change? Yeah, no, you're right. And the, the reality is that already there is a transition period in, in the way the legislation works. So PST2 comes into effect in, in January, but the regulatory technical standards, which are the things that people are complaining about because it effectively bans screen scraping, um, we still don't know when that's actually com coming into effect. It's kind of 18 months after it's approved and it's not yet approved. So the likelihood is that fintechs are going to have at least a year, probably more like 18 months to transition. And during that time, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting because the banks are going to have to allow access to fintechs. So a lot of them in their terms and conditions at the moment say, you know, oh, don't give away your credentials to third parties, don't use aggregation uh, services. Um, they're going to have to change that because if a fintech gets uh, re registered with uh, the FCA here in the UK or, a, or another kind of a regulator in Europe, um, then they will have the legal right to kind of access that data. And so banks have to start allowing them from January, but the whole kind of technical standards around it don't come in you know, for a while yet. So, so there's going to be a, a messy transition period. And, um, and yeah, you know, that's just the reality of where we are. Does that get complicated further in the UK then? Because the Competition and Markets Authority's open banking measures are due to come into force similar sort of times, and they're expecting the UK banks to have their APIs ready by end of first quarter 2018, is it? Yeah, so I mean, they're targeting actually the, the date that PST2 goes live, but that's ah. for the top nine banks and just for current accounts. And so, you know, most people with existing services doing screen scraping, it's not just the current accounts, it's credit cards, investments, mortgages. And so they're even from the, the nine banks, if they go live with APIs, and there's still a bit of an if, if, they, if they're going to hit those timelines. But even then, there's, there's this um, transition. So uh, here in the UK, I think there's actually been fairly good collaboration. I think, you know, there's a, there's a general consensus here that, look, actually, let's move away from screen scraping on that together. And it's, uh, yeah, it's just a, a, in Europe, it seems a bit more like a, like a shouting match um, with, with uh, you know, essentially some of the big fintechs there who do more than just the um, aggregation, but, you know, with support, you can actually make payments and things like that. Um, and to be honest, they're, they're sounding a bit like, um, you know, in my mind, they're acting almost like more like a big bank saying, oh, no, keep the status quo, don't change things. And that's just that's a weird message to come from. But is it not, I guess, is it not a concern that, uh, you know, obviously, they've got business models built on these existing practices, uh, but also, 
knowing what the quality of these APIs are going to be like, because I guess one of the things that's been flagged up is how many of the fintech companies have actually been involved in the design of these regulations or the design of these APIs. Like you say in the UK, it's the big nine banks building these APIs. Is that not a bit like, you know, turkeys building their own carving knives? Yeah, it is. It is, and especially kind of in continental Europe, I think it is a real issue. Here in the UK, to be honest, it's it's actually not too bad because of the CMA remedy. There are like about a hundred people, I think, working at this Open Banking Limited, and they're they're although the banks are paying for it, it is an independent entity, and actually they're they're really tr- they're doing a good job. It's a difficult, but to try and balance the needs of the consumers, fintechs, and the banks, and so here in the UK, I think we're going to get a standard which um, which is is going to work uh you know across in europe yeah there is it is it is tricky and and definitely the banks could really obstruct uh fintechs you know if if they chose to but um i think that's where we need to get a a kind of orderly transition and you know across europe so if you look at bbva they've had um apis for a while now you look at nordea and um you know quite a few other banks in the nordics um and they also kind of launched api programs so this kind of view that banks are just these, you know, evil people who want to obstruct, you know, any any new technology isn't quite accurate. And, you know, yeah, we need to try and protect against the ones who will behave in that way. But um, but probably rather than just shouting at them, a good way is to um, is to try and work with them and to, you know, to let them see these these new opportunities. So I'm, I'm hoping it'll be a bit of an arms race for the banks yeah. to get the best API. It is going to be very interesting, and it is going to be uh, to be messy. But I just think the direction is going completely the right way. And and the problem with screen scraping is that you know people lump all these things together. So that's kind of one of the things that I've been talking about. That yeah, there's there's kind of accessing the data via essentially an undocumented API, and no one ever wants to do that. You know, we're only doing that because we don't have a choice. You know, the the, the second issue is that currently with screen scraping, um, it's it's impersonation. So so the bank can't you know, definitely know whether it's the end user or an aggregator that they've given their credentials to. That issue can actually be solved. And so there's there's proposals floating around. And that's one of the proposals from these European fintechs, which um, uh, we've got a similar proposal here in the UK, that in this transition period, fintechs can at least identify themselves uh, themselves to the banks. But but the big issue really is, is those credentials. And um, yeah, that, you know, the, the PSD2 and, and the regulatory technical standards talk about strong customer authentication. And to be honest, that, that is, that's the huge issue at the moment. And it affects loads of existing business models, you know, even things like, you know, Amazon OneClick. The fact that banks have to apply this strong customer authentication and they can only, uh, you know, there's only certain circumstances where they don't have to apply it. That's the big issue. And I just don't think, as it's currently worded, strong customer authentication can take place, you know, via some sort of screen scraping. So, you know, we're going to have to move forward. And it's, it's, it's tricky, you know, legislating for APIs is tricky, really, you know, legislators shouldn't have to get involved in this stuff. Well, we'll uh, see how it pans out over the next three, six, 12, 18, 24 months, however long it's going to be. But uh, the doors are metaphorically opening and are definitely not closing anytime soon. So thanks for joining us, Dave. Yeah, no, thanks. Pleasure. All right, so thank you very much, Dave, for that from Money Hub. I mean, I get the sense, Ajit, that um, do you have some thoughts on this one? Yeah, so we just came out with our uh, you know thought paper on uh, implementing PSD2 while you're also implementing GDPR. 
And we are in this uh, wonderful world where consumers, uh, I mean, see, cybersecurity and privacy is a big part of customers' digital experience, right? It's not just about having access to fun and exciting products and services or useful products and services. At the end of the day, the customers do need their information to be secure and protected. And for that, we need standards. So the regulators are actually, I think, are genuinely doing the right thing here by standardizing how third parties are allowed or not allowed to access customers' data or transaction information from the banks. And banks, I mean, are the custodians of all of this data as well. So for once, I'm on the side of banks, right, on this one. And I think the the RTS is right about it. Well, it'd be nice to have some standards around it, sure. But actually, if those standards aren't usable by anyone, like, what's the point? Are they standards? I mean, but the CMA, they're not standards, they're frameworks. Uh, it's one of the major problems. That is correct. So I think we're in, a, uh, we're in we're looking at two different regulatory regimes sort of going on in parallel and create, trying to create standards. Right. This is a this is a negotiated process where a lot of banks and fintechs and regulators and people like us will come in and have open discussions about uh, what the standards should be. So you're right. The APIs aren't standardized yet, but that's mm-hmm. but that's definitely the direction that we think things will go, and they're going. So let's let's give it some time and let's be part of that process. It really feels to me like this is like the to and fro that we're going to go over the next sort of 18 months on this one in terms of like everybody wanting it broader and like more open. And the, you know, the regulation was put in place, you know, the intent of that in its first place was to increase competition, right? Yes, but but look at that intent. You know, this this magic pill of we just need to increase competition and then the great fintech utopia will overcome, you know wash all over all of us i'm not sure i'm not sure i'm not (laughs) sure whether they think well i'm not sure whether they think that fintech's gonna get the banks i'm not sure that's what you necessarily meant but i think it's gonna it's like turning up the heat underneath the banks so i think almost like the fear and like just the opportunities for other people to come in there is a fear i mean i've talked to banks in the u.s and their attitude is keep that stuff over in europe please don't (laughs) let it come across (laughs) come across the pond and but yeah this is i mean i think this this story without going deep dive on it is it illustrates what we're going to see, some of the consequences are unintended or intended from what happens with the PSD2, which is what happens with every single regulation that comes out. Um, once it gets in practice from the practitioners, and in this case, payments entrants and banks, mm-hmm. then we're going to see actually what does happen. Mm. Yeah. And, and my fear is, unfortunately, given every other regulation that we've kind of seen come through, is yeah. it gets watered down so much that actually the intent of it in its first place is... We have PSD3. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I, the first mention of that, I think, on stage, Dave Birch recorded that a couple of weeks ago, and somebody already talking about the requirements for PSD3, because we don't think PSD2 is going to do what it needs to do. It's it, it, it's kind of sad, but we, we better move on, because we can talk about this all day, every day. Um, and the next story up is one in the Telegraph. Uh, so the headline here is Upstart challenger banks eye consolidation and i think what they mean by this is the likes of virgin money and, and a few others like that maybe oak north and that kind of size of bank not necessarily your monzos and your starlings but this this brand challenger uh looking at some of the more troubled assets in the uk maybe a co-op maybe uh, former northern trust assets etc and starting to try and build their presence a more traditional way by actually buying loan books and buying deposit books is that actually going to make any real difference to the landscape in the UK? Because Santander came and did this in the last 10 years. Could we see more of that maybe? I, 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 I do apologize. I'm actually going to talk about the media here because I think there is a misunderstanding and I don't really like the term challenger banks anyway, of the mainstream media not really knowing what a challenger bank is. You know, so there was a, a guy from Metro Bank, which was on Radio 4 uh, last week and, you know, they called him a challenger bank and 
you're a high street bank with a branch. Um, that's not what I would call a challenger bank. The announcer proceeded to ask him questions about the breakup of RBS. And the guy rightly said, well, I, I don't work at RBS. I can't talk about what what they're doing there. <laughs> um, you know, and I once had someone from Santander UK call, tell me that they were a challenger bank. I said, dude, you sponsor the bikes. You're not a challenger <laughs> bank. So, <laughs> so that's, that's the bar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, so, yeah, so there is. I think very much this article is about the, the co-ops and the Virgin Monies and the Williams and Glens and, um, and that sort of that kind wave, of mid tier you know, where yeah. there's this, this movement happening and this. See, see, fundamentally, I think there are two <laughs> questions here, right? Why do we think we need challenger banks? So, if you look at the banking industry's performance in the UK over the last, uh, well, since the beginning of the financial crisis, banks haven't been doing very well. I mean, they've not made a lot of money. There are banks that have made nine consecutive years of losses, is it? And these banks still have a lot of market share. So clearly, something is not right about the banking industry, right? And probably more competition is required. The other point of view is from the consumer's perspective, which is, are we not getting, uh, I mean, the kind of products and services we could get if there was more competition in the market? Does Competition fix low interest rate environments. Mm. Does competition <laughs> yeah. fix um, uh, consumer <laughs> apathy? I don't know that it does. I think there's, and I don't think regulation fixes it necessarily. I think it's it's possibly even generational. I mean, MJ, you see all kinds of, of challenger banks and, and brands and that sort of thing. Do you think there's an approach coming from the challenger banks and brands that could really shake up the market and actually win customer share? And, and who might that be? I mean, I think that when we look at like the Tesco's and the Virgin Monies, they're not challenger banks. If anything, they're challenger challenger brands, which I think is a completely outdated term given how much the UK has changed in the past few years with the true challenger banks and the likes of Monzo and, and Adam and, and whatnot. And I mean, I think it will be... It it will be interesting to see sort of who they can pick off and sort of what type of uh, momentum they can get. But certainly from what we're seeing in terms of the challenger banks opening up into sort of the world of the marketplace and really just providing like great services for customers and I think changing the way that sort of the more millennial and younger generation looks at banking and approaches banking. And I think that that's going to be sort of um, a medium to longer term impact for... I, I do think that... Um, what will happen, and I'm not saying I agree or approve that this should happen, but what we consider to be challenger banks, the Adams and the Monzos, I think will eventually be bought by Lloyds and Barclays and HSBC as this boutique business. As or the other way around, depending on the valuations. Well, <laughs> well, well, so, the, so that's what happened with an, uh, RBS and NatWest. That's what happened with Lloyds and HBOS. The, the smaller one ate the bigger one. And actually, if they can grow their customer base to a certain point, maybe. And be more but, profitable but then and more the alternative right. is the BBVA by Simple, Holvi, and anything else that moves. But then you think about what happens after those acquisitions. And Simple, Holvi, what's happened since Atom? What's happened since they've acquired these organizations? They've pumped a whole bunch of money in there, but they're not necessarily getting the business case benefit. And actually, it feels to me like the market's really looking for that business case that makes sense. And yet, here in the UK, so I was talking to the um, CEO of RFI, the research company, earlier today, and he was sort of mentioning that uh, the UK is the third most digitally ready country in the world when they survey different generations. So if you look at uh, number one was China, number two was India, number three was the UK. Uh, and in a lot of markets, you see um, that actually that's the millennials that are digitally ready and then it kind of drops off through Gen X and down into the boomers. In the UK, it's pretty flat. As a country, we are absolutely ripe and ready, but also we're not a billion people. Uh, we have one major regulator that you need to deal with and we have um, a government that's really pushing for competition. So 
does this mean then that the tech players come in? Does it mean that more things like that happen? Could they get into this console, uh, challenger consolidation place? Yeah, see, part of uh, digital disruption is that it sort of is going to rewire the industries, as in uh, it'll redesign industries. So I think we're thinking too much about bank banks, and we're thinking not enough about banking, right? So what are the services that the consumer wants? And if WeChat, for example, or Tencent is in a posi- position to create lending credit or other credit models or payment services, then they don't have to be a bank. They don't have to be a payments provider, right? So it's a question of who's got the best. And especially with open banking, once uh, third parties start to combine their data or uh, external data with banks' information to offer new and exciting products and services, then these boundaries between industries sort of start to dissolve. I think that's what's really exciting about this. When, when does the regulator come in, though? Because you know, the, the, the FCA yeah. doesn't regulate Apple Pay. But if you're moving towards a, a place where there are a lot of people who sit, look at their payments through Apple Pay uh-huh. and then you go into credit, then you're going into the bank world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where does the regulator come in? And it's the same with Bitcoin and all of that stuff, right? As in the regulators are there to protect consumers at the end of the day. So if there is a financial service being offered to a consumer one way or the other in whatever form it is, then the regulators will be involved to protect and do what they do, which is monitor and protect. uh, There's a funny story about a a bank CEO who shall remain nameless. um, And I have this second hand who once asked one of his aides, why do I need to take deposits at all? because it's the least profitable part of my business. That's what makes a bank. That's a bank. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bank. <laughs> what? what? <laughs> was it you, Liz? <laughs> David nearly fell off his chair. <laughs> but, but I think what he was actually getting at, I think what he was actually getting at was that this is something that, uh, you, uh, to Ajit's point, there are a lot of bits of banking that you can chop up that are profitable. And the, dep- the holding on to money bit is the least profitable bit. Like the, the current account is the least profitable bit and it's hard to run that at, at, at any time yes, but, but i think there's something that that you shouldn't forget okay and i i get exactly what you're saying but the reason why banks take deposits and make loans and that is heavily regulated is because your money is secure that's exactly right and so we're we have to look at business models where that still that core still exists because dealing with people's money is very serious. And I can't keep my money in, under the mattress, right? Mm. As sometimes people did in Japan when the interest rates were really low. You're right, Liz. I mean, there is banking as a fundamental service involves protecting somebody else's money. So yeah, deposits. Can I stop? Just, just one quick thing. I mean, why on earth would these? challenger banks want to consolidate why on earth would you want to buy it it's bad enough trying to start one let alone then we'll buy another one and absorb but, but it's a load not a of challenger legacy. bank is it it's a challenger brand and i guess growing through acquisition is something we see in the market a lot in the banking space it, it it's one of those things that makes sense on a spreadsheet fragmentation and consolidation That's it's right. it's but it makes sense with certain circle of life not- yeah yes it is <laughs> it's a circle of life and speaking of the circle of life i gotta move us on to the next oh, story damn. yeah i gotta do it i gotta move us on uh, we've got a lot of stories to get through today and the next one here is in banking technology um deutsche bank are leading a charge for a pan industry e-identity platform. Ajit, do you know a little bit about this one? Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, Deutsche Bank have been leading the thinking uh, in my book in this space for a while now. And uh, let's think about what happens after open banking and PSD2 are real, right? So if, if you're a retailer and you're a bank uh, and, and you want, uh, as a consumer, I want to be able to use my, you know, retailer's account 
to access my deposits in a bank and actually make payments, then I do need the bank and the retailer to share a certain token or some notion of identity where they can both agree that I am Ajit, right? And this is my account. So uh, from a commercial perspective, I know there has been a lot of debate about self-sovereign identity and there is a lot of philosophy in this space. But fundamentally, from a consumer's perspective, identity is the ability of you know people who provide me services and products to be able to identify me and agree on who I am so that they can then provide more interesting and effective services. So Deutsche Bank are fundamentally saying is that multiple parties need to come together to create a, a sort of an industry body where they can create a notion of identity that they can share. So, but it's pan-European, this thing, right? So it's, it's across all of Europe and it's led largely by financial institutions and companies that can verify your identity. It's not dissimilar from what we've seen in the UK with gov.verify and that didn't go so well like we're going to trust the market to build this thing for us because we don't think we can build it as a government is is one thing but actually can banks get together and execute a massive consumer platform i don't i'm not really convinced when i when i look at the market they got the merchants on on side saying you know what you don't sell alcohol to people under 18, we're going to take that risk away from you yeah, because yeah. we're going to have an identity. Oh, I exactly buy the business right. case, Liz. So, yeah. I completely buy the business case. I just don't buy their ability to execute. Yes, yeah, so you're okay. absolutely right. Mm. But I think fundamentally the consumer need overrides all of those constraints because I think with PSD2 and open banking, we'll, we'll fundamentally be in a world where a notion of shared identity between all of these companies is required. And that consumer need is going to drive these participants to essentially create a platform that works. See, I've seen markets where that has worked. I mean, MJ, you know this better than me. What markets have this worked in and, and kind of how have they done that? Yeah, I think that, I mean, the best example would be Bank ID in Sweden. So essentially it's um, an ID solution where the banks and the government agencies can essentially conclude agreements um, over the internet or, or over mobile. And I think that, I mean, with Bank ID, it sits so nicely within the banking platforms and the apps and everything. And it allows just customers to sort of go through these sort of processes so much quicker than what we see in, in other markets. And it has a huge uptake and it's just, it's become the norm in, in Sweden. But did that come from one bank and then everybody adopted it or was it kind of um, I think it's a government it, program government in Sweden yeah. and this is the same in it's Estonia cultural, this is the same in yeah, Norway this is the same in China this is the it's same, the same in, in India, India. Yeah. yes right. and, and so actually does Deutsche really need something coming else from, from, from someone else standing behind them and a government that can execute but they're not really trying to own this problem, right? As they're not saying that Deutsche will build it for everybody. But they're saying this needs, needs to. to happen. Somebody needs to own the problem. And, and somebody needs kind of... to lead the thinking and influence everybody else to come together and do this, right? Yeah. So Deutsche are playing is... a cat- catalytic role. They, they, they played a huge role in pushing SEPA down everyone's throats. So Deutsche Bank have a lot of power. But for yeah. years, you know, organizations like the GSMA, they've been trying it from a, a, tele- a telephony point of view. They've not cracked it. The banks aren't going to crack it. It's... it's you know, I think identity is one of the, the, the great problems of our time. Everybody, you know, identity is the new money, plug in Dave Birch's book for him. But it's also probably one of the hardest problems to, to solve. Dave, can we get some free copies for the show? Uh, <laughs> He's but, promised me one. But there's been so many attempts, you know, and there's, there's uh, EIDAS, which is the European it's, it's, scheme to try and do that. 
I'm sensing a lot of angst here as we really want this to happen tomorrow but it's a really hard problem right this is going to take time it's a hard problem because there's I don't think there's any one actor unlike in the Nordics or Estonia or um say even with India or China especially with China where you've got this one actor who can say just fucking do it just get on with it just make this thing happen and and you don't really have that in Europe because there's so much more debate that needs to happen about everything everybody and needs five papers and five everywhere lessons. you know that type of identity you you can't tell someone in Britain or America that the government's going to issue an ID card. I know that these things happen in other ways, but that culturally is not going to happen the way it happens in Sweden. But Europe also has a track record of sort of getting together and making laws and agreeing on regulations and agreeing on standards, right? It's Europe. a slow process. What, what, what's what's Europe? It's the thing we had before Brexit, David. Uh, well, okay. <laughs> it gonna was a good a, thing. We're going to have a big, beautiful wall right down the channel. <laughs> we do eventually agree on a lot of things and make them happen. Look, right. actually, don't get me wrong. I, I want Deutsche to do well at this. I want this to succeed. We need it. It could make life so much easier it's a hard problem but it's a very hard problem it's a very hard problem i think the the thing to note on this one is it's not just deutsche bank on their own right you know no. in fact the article actually calls out alliance and daimler and postbank and blah 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 blah. so there's plenty of other people in this and it's really about a discussion about the problem and trying to figure out what to do it i don't think deutsche bank are big enough to do this on their own and uh, you know reading the article i don't think they do either no, no but they can I, influence I, I, it that humility is is a fantastic starting point, without question. I just, uh, yeah, I just worry about execution on these things. I've seen them come and go a few times, but uh, got to move on. Uh, Aidan, there's one in Bloomberg here about uh, Apple can thank Alipay for shopping. What, what's the story about? Well, it's a pretty big story in that um, Alibaba have uh, hooked up with First Data Corp in the US, which has given them access to 4 million merchants, which is just half a million merchants less than Apple Pay, which gives them quite some scale. Uh We've got another Chinese story as well. Before we go there, though, First Data Corporation, formerly like that's a huge acquiring organization. We had the CEO of um, an MD of uh, Europe on the show, Rita Liu, um, three, four weeks ago, and their goal is to follow their uh, tourists and actually by enabling merchants. And I've not really seen this happen anywhere else. So, like, if if I'm an acquiring bank in the US, I'm thinking, goodness, this is probably way more of a threat than than Apple Pay. Are are Alipay still pretending they're doing all of this for Chinese? people Tourists. traveling abroad <laughs> no that's their strategy is you leverage that as your first set of um transactions and then after that you push into those markets yeah because they're, they're you know all the way through this article they're basically referring to the fact that don't worry this is just for chinese tourists in the in the u.s <laughs> like we've sort of heard don't for all the chinese other stuff that they were doing yeah <laughs> and then it's just like flick a switch and you're everywhere doing everything it's quite terrifying really but but i've seen this in the uk like they're in selfridges and they're in a few other places um you know major tourists spots do do have them that is their strategy but without question the intent is to then go, go much further sorry Aiden, I, I cut you across with sorry, the next no, story. i was going to say we, we've got a couple of stories and again it's we didn't have any last week which is which is rare for us but again it's just the chinese the chinese players alipay does from, a thing alipay does a thing oh it's massive tencent does a thing oh it's massive again so the other guys are breaking out into the us into yeah. the eu I think the biggest challenge is going to be that they are coming from a country that has blocked Facebook and Google both from time to time. And now what does that mean for Alipay entering the United States? And how does 
that work. The competition's going to get interesting because you've got this double-sided uh, kind of wall in which things can't get into the, the Chinese market and things can't really get out of them. Mm. Um, and if they have, they've been regional in, in both directions. Uh, it's mm. going to be interesting. They can't even get into Hong Kong. You get me now? <laughs> it's right next door. Yeah. It's, it's, so, so it's going to be interesting to see. You can follow your tourists pretty well, but can you do that next step is, is kind of the really huge challenge. But then also that the flip side of that coin is, but isn't the strategy interesting? Isn't the proposition interesting, especially on the WeChat, Alipay side? Um, you're following chat, building services around that. We haven't. Facebook have tried that progressively. They're starting to do that in India. Uh, they're starting to do that in more markets um, through through uh, WhatsApp. But will we see more of that? And will they do that in all markets? I just don't know. We spoke with James Lloyd, our friend in Hong Kong at EY, for a little bit of an insight into these stories. James, thanks again for joining us. Uh, always a pleasure. So, James, got two big stories, as usual, from China. Uh, first up, uh, a story from Bloomberg. Apple can thank Alipay for shopping. What's your take on uh, this interesting partnership? Yeah, I mean, look, maybe can we just turn this show into a China show and uh, occasionally have <laughs> contributors from I'm the UK? Sure, talking I'm about sure we're, we're all happy to fly out to Hong Kong or China, <laughs> wherever we'll, re- we'll record a big show over there, that we would definitely be up for that. I mean, look, I think my first reaction to this is it is very interesting to me how much attention the big China players are now getting relative to 12 months ago, let alone to three or five years ago. Um, of course, that's a consequence of their growth, uh, but also very much their internationalization. And in this instance, you know, great deal with, between First Data and Alipay. Um, actually, they, I believe they, they, they've been partnering for some time on a trial basis. But again, you know, in, in a simplest level, this just enables the same old strategy, which is to say, can we facilitate China outbound, uh, be they tourists or students, as they seek to uh, pay for you know, goods and services as they travel? But maybe there's a little bit more to it than that in terms of these types of strategic relationships and, and what are the potential quid pro quos. Um, I, I'm not sure why Apple is part of this. I mean, actually, I think for me, the more interesting Apple story in relation to China is the decline in, in, in some of their sales of, of iPhones in China. And look, I think the outband continues to impress. You know, my, my take on this as ever is that Ali and Ant Financial have a very coordinated strategic roadmap and they know where they want to go. And they're getting there at, at record speed. Uh, WeChat a little bit more uh, fragmented, perhaps in their international approach. Um, you know, maybe as a consequence of their of their domestic focus. And I think we're going to see some pretty interesting stats out of Tencent in relation to that over the coming months. So just on that, the other story of the week is that you know WeChat's uh, Tencent's. Uh equivalent. Uh, they've made an investment in uh, Silicon Valley-based mobile payments, Sitcon. Again, it's it, it, it's very interesting to see moves outside of China um, for me, uh, and I guess potentially worrying for some of the other financial players. Well, so again, I don't know if this is as big a deal, perhaps, as a couple of the papers have reported. Um, actually, I, do, I wasn't aware they've made an investment in Sitcon. My understanding was that it was more a, a partnership, a merchant acceptance partnership. They did make a, an investment in a company I know quite well last week called Airwallex out of Australia which is a uh, remittance company uh, where Tencent uh, co-invested alongside MasterCard and Sequoia. So again, a small early stage investment, but kind of perhaps interesting given the, uh, given the money movement uh, remittance phase. Uh, you, you know, I think Tencent as a firm, 
perhaps on this podcast and elsewhere, I, I talk about WeChat Pay quite a lot. I talk about the ecosystem in WeChat. Tencent is ultimately a gaming company, and that's where they, they make incredible revenues, really fantastic cash business. The messaging side in China is all pervasive, and I only see that going up and to the right. I mean, in terms of the amount of time people are spending on the platform, it's getting more and more. Uh, so payments is an inherent part of that now, and, and particularly the offline side, they've been making huge inroads. I'm not sure what the international ambitions of a WeChat can be. I mean, if you just simply look at the numbers in, in many of the Western markets, Facebook, Facebook Messenger, uh, WhatsApp are, are entirely dominant. Uh, out here in Asia, you've got Line in Japan, Thailand, you've got Kakao in Korea, uh, you've got Viber, you've got a couple of other players. Um, but but ultimately, it, it feels like a difficult market in which to in which to really dominate, as they have done in China. So where does that leave WeChat Pay? Um, my own sense is probably more aligned to the Chinese outbound again, the students and travelers. And is there a more strategic play beyond that? I think we're going to have to wait and see. Well, we will wait for next week's uh, bunch of stories that astound us as uh, the march continues. Great stuff, James. Thank you very much. Cheers. All the best. Thanks very much to James. Uh, MJ, have you seen anything in the WeChat side that has impressed you? What is it about it that really makes it stand out? I mean, it's just, it does everything you could possibly need to do. I mean, from paying your friends to booking appointments, from paying utilities and everything, all in one, like, central, super easy um, to use hub. And I think that, like, anywhere that WeChat and subsequently WePay is coming into a market, people should genuinely be frightened. <laughs> Frightened. <laughs> Ooh. And, and you can see that all on pulse, right? <laughs> Cool. All right. So uh, next story up. MJ, we've got a story from Nina Mahanti, um, who's at Nina Mahanti on Twitter. Um, the story's in Mac Rumors. Uh, Visa and payment startup Current launched debit card for kids that ties like per- yeah, that ties parental <laughs> control. I've yeah. seen that one before. <laughs> so, yeah, basically, is this just Osper or? Yeah, essentially it is. And I mean, I think that we've been we've been seeing over the past few years kind of trying to get into this space and I think that it kind of it goes into a wider push with the idea of having sort of um, group accounts and sub accounts so something we're seeing with bunk it's sort of not necessarily positioned towards um, sort of youngsters but kind of that maintaining payment limits and who are bunk for listeners that might not know or people in the room Uh, bunk is a uh, challenger bank coming out of uh, the Netherlands are quite cool they're doing some interesting stuff but i mean yeah essentially it it's an app where it's digitizing like the weekly allowance um so parents can sort of get a better sense of where their children are spending kids can get uh, more educated on saving and spending and whatnot so it's essentially awesome but i think having looked at the app like the ui and the look and feel is much better than osper it feels much more targeted towards an actual youngster a teenager the the bank one not the uh no 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 the the visa visa current yeah because osper has a uh, partnership with mastercard yes yeah rivalry being formed (laughs) yeah so i think i don't know it'll be it will be interesting to see if i don't know if if the sort of targeting towards the younger generation ever really picks up or anything i'm fascinated by. i know i think it's fantastic i have a 12 year old who's been on it for a number of years and when we first opened him up a bank account at at a a spanish bank that has branches in the uk um they gave him a Passbook, and I was like, "Oh my god, why, why?" Then we got him an Osper, and he 
I mean, I've had to turn it off a few times when he went a little overboard at the trainer store. But um, <laughs> it, it's great. I love it. I, I, my, I think it's a good way to go. But this is what's annoying for me. I mean, why are we educating this new generation in the old tools? Why are we giving them physical cards instead of a more digital experience? Because this is your this receptive is the, audience. This is the bridge. This is the bridge. This is the bridge. That's yeah. Right. yeah. yeah that's but, but also, right. why aren't like, high street banks more interested in this as a proposition? Yes, exactly. That's what pissed me off about Osprey. It's like, why didn't... All the big four, the big five, offer them. But because it, it baffles because me. Because the bank, the bank is my bank. The bank is my bank. Account. And once, once you've got somebody at a young age, you've got them for life because they're yeah, not going to switch. Exactly. I mean, I, yeah, what we've seen, like the only initiative is like NatWest. Like they came out with like the Pigby kind of like mm-hmm. iPad app, which was nec- it was a game. It didn't really like provide that much in terms of. Oh, like, what the kids need? Kids need games, not accounts. No, so, ki- oh, ki- but- kids need <laughs> something that they can take to the Lego store at Blue Water and buy something with. That's that was a game changer for my son. I think it was a game changer. Yeah, that he could do that without mummy being there. And and that's a sense of empowerment. It's a sense of financial control. It's it's oh, learning it's how money works at a young age. Like all of this stuff could be really adding to the social responsibility and the CSR side of what banks do. Instead of sending staff into schools, which is a great initiative, I don't discourage it. But actually, how about living it through your product? Yeah, I, I've seen bank people say, "Young people have no money. Why do we need them as customers?" I'm like. Because they will... They're your future customers. They will have money someday. We were all young at one point, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I think um, this, this is... Again, I've talked about this before, but we've not really seen any family interfaces. This doesn't have to just be kids. This could be, you know, and we're talking about younger kids, yeah. but A, students, A, elder parents, A... It, it, there's, there's, there's really not been any anything... From, again, from banks, really delivering products that, that no. deal with the fact that we aren't just individuals who have a banking relationship. I'm we probably are part the guy. Of families. Now, I'm probably the guy in this room who spent too much time doing regulatory work. So, <laughs> uh, now, if you, I don't know if Simon, if you watched the recent episode of Silicon Valley, and there is this <laughs> chat application that under 13s are using, and apparently that's a problem. So, while you're giving access to financial products and services to young people, uh, you probably want to be careful about what the implications are going to be for these customers. And again, that's going to be interesting is how you can d- design controls into it that either it becomes com- compliant or regulatory compliant. Yeah, so I mean with this, the essentially the, the child has three different types of wallets within the app. So they have the spending wallet, which is linked to the debit card. They have the savings wallet where they can put money away for a rainy day. And they actually have a giving wallet, which is sort of something we haven't seen where they can donate to um, charities. This is beautiful. Mm. Right. Because I, I guess, the, like you say, 13 is the age, but can you, I don't know, would you give a younger child his £10? Well, we do that, right? Exactly. Well, the, the hospital card is 8, eight, to, the eight uh, to 18. Yeah. So, yeah. Regulations <laughs> be damned. We need better services for families. You know, i got to say, though, um, I've been really impressed by the uh, sandbox initiatives and the ability of regulators to be open-minded about this kind of stuff and large organizations to be terrified by the letter of the law not the spirit of the law and actually if you were to put something like this into a regulatory sandbox and say we're going to test this we're going to measure it we're going to be very safe and slow and and ensured about it or not even in the sandbox just go to project innovate go to mas in singapore go to the number of initiatives that are popping up in the u.s along the same lines the fca is unbelievably enlightened about this stuff right they're willing to have a conversation uh, and make sure that there is a uh, there is a phased approach to launching some of these services and the sandbox initiative is absolutely the right place to have those conversations with absolutely well on that note we got to throw over to our sponsors and thank them and uh, have our pulse minute 
The Financial Times guides you through complex issues. In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to FT.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Let's be honest. Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. 11FS Pulse Update. Hello, this is Ross from 11FS. And this is Megan from 11FS. Today, Megan is going to tell us all about a new market entrant and another new brand being featured in 11FS Pulse, the UK challenger bank, Starling. Yep, Starling are out of beta and open for business. And what has caught your eye? Firstly, the onboarding. Some customers have experienced a few kinks, but me personally, I had a great experience that only took a couple of minutes. The UI was super slick, and the identity check was completed without any pain points, which isn't always the case with account opening on a mobile. And once you're up and running with the account? The landing page is super visual and very unbank-like. You can see your balance, your spend for the day, and a nice breakdown of spend per merchant. Also, you can easily add a new pay just by authenticating with your password. It sounds like you're a fan. Sure am. Cool. And as always, tell us where we can see these Starling journeys in action. Head over to our website at 11fs.com and look up 11fs Pulse, where there are hundreds of great digital banking experiences being showcased. Thank you very much to our sponsors, and thank you, MJ and Ross, for that Pulse Minute. Um, MJ, there's a story here in banking innovation. Barclays are giving users total control over debit. I think this is debit card transactions in an effort to stop card fraud. What's what's going on here? Yeah, I mean, what they've actually implemented isn't anything new in terms of being able to limit your card and where you can use it within the app. But what is quite different is sort of how they're spinning it um, and simultaneously running this campaign um, as a way, I think it's the new digital security campaign, um, the Great British Fraud Fight Back. So it's a 10 million pound initiative um, to increase consumer awareness of digital fraud risk within the UK. So what they're actually letting customers do within the app um, is they can set up an ATM withdrawal limit um, and they can toggle off and on the ability to make remote purchases. Now this is like nothing new whatsoever. So Monzo, you can freeze your card. Metro Bank, you can freeze your card. We've been seeing European banks and most notably Commonwealth Bank of Australia um, sort of have a comprehensive part within the app where customers can limit if transact if the card can be used online, um, inside Australia, outside Australia, um, etc. But it is quite interesting how they're sort of getting this whole like PR campaign behind it. And I think that's sort of in typical Barclays fashion. And I do love this podcast in order to just be slightly contrary all the time. So I actually think this is a good thing. 
I think like Barclays delivering this to millions of people is actually like a big deal. Like, you know, I, I great it's great that Monzo are doing it to like a hundred thousand people and I love you, Monzo, but in terms of actually delivering it out to like millions upon millions of people, then it you know, almost like big banks fighting back, right? Absolutely. Banks should be a distribution platform for good ideas and that's really a great thing. I would I would like to know, I didn't read the article, I do apologize. Um but is I mean Barclays has the Techstars Rise accelerator program. Is this something they developed in house or is this something that they brought is uh, you you're mouthing at me <laughs> <laughs> nobody else can hear you simon you need to make noises no but i really wanted to know because you know if, if banks have these accelerator programs and and bring in stuff like where did this you know innovation come from is it come from in house the the uh, the article doesn't say uh it just says it's a barclays developed thing mm-hmm. uh, the, the 10 million fraud thing is quite interesting as well i, I wonder if so they're spending 10 million to shave a significant amount of fraud off? Like how how, I, ma- I think how much that, fraud think do we it, have to get rid of to get rid of 10 million? Just like save I, the 10 million, right? I don't for- know if that's the business case. I think there's a bit of marketing here and there's also a bit of the fact that having the feature when you're a high street bank isn't the goal. Having a feature that people use is the goal. And actually you need to get people aware of that. So if you've got a fraud issue because you've got 12 million customers who don't know how to do something properly and they, they've never seen a feature before, you have to educate them to how to use the feature. And I think this is the right thing to do. I think you've got, it's one thing, as you say, to have 100,000 people use it, but those 100,000 people are self-selecting as people who really get this stuff and are really geeky and really care about it. But there's a whole sway of the country for who fintech just doesn't matter. And actually managing their money and not getting defrauded really matters. And having some education for them is, is probably a really good thing. There is a 7 billion people in the world who don't really need to know how the internet works, but they use it anyways, right? So fintech to me is like that. For sure. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. My mom doesn't need to know how it works. She just needs to know Absolutely. how to use it, right? And I think on um, you know, the innovation the coming internally. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, yeah. And, and if so... Perfectly happy to use it. I have yeah. no desire to yeah. <laughs> If it is, I'm very proud, I have to say. I think on the innovation coming from internally or externally, I think there's definitely something about are, are, the, um, are these labs purely just for show or are they actually delivering anything? No. We covered the story last week of um, Barclays launching the quote-unquote largest fintech hub in Europe. And, and I think the, the intent is definitely there. I've, as a former Barclays employee, I've never worked anywhere that wants innovation more than Barclays does and will will make bets. And actually, I think we should encourage them for trying and making bets, even if they don't convert all of them. And I'm sure they want to get their conversion higher. I, like it is astounding how many things Barclays do have in that space. I, I was saying to you guys offline, like they have an Eagles Lab in Norwich. Uh, like how I didn't know about that, given there's like four other things happening in Norwich, is it just astounding to me? Mustard. It, exactly, yeah. Like it, it's like Delia Smith, some mustard stuff, and now the Eagle Lab. <laughs> Bernard Matthews. Yes. <laughs> Don't talk about him so much lately. I'll be honest. A fictional character. Yeah, thank you. The other the other three of these are real. But Alan Partridge of FinTech is David Breer, right? Oh, great. Uh, thank yeah. you. That one's going to stick. Yeah, it really is, and especially in podcasting. But I think that the Eagles Lab is an interesting example of something where if you're outside of London, like how do you get to play in FinTech? You might, I, As somebody who lived in West Yorkshire for many years before moving to London, I was interested in FinTech from 2009. I didn't move to London until 2013. I was following the thing on Twitter, like, and I always felt like I was outside of the party. Did you to move ha- to London for fintech? 
I moved to London for a job at Barclays. Um, and I moved to London for fintech too. And, and it was, and I think, I, I think the only reason I got the job was because of fintech. Yeah, without question. So yeah, I got a lot to thank Barclays for, and I think they're doing the right thing on the on on that stuff. Um, so we we got to move on. Uh, David, there's one here in the FT where the Aviva chief executive has hit out a personal insurance market. Has he just taken a baseball bat to it? What's going on? It, well, it's it's an interesting one, and we should thank uh, Nigel Walsh for sending this one in from Deloitte. So Mark Wilson basically saying the entirety of the market is dysfunctional, which is a pretty broad statement to make. Uh, the market is broken. I don't like it, and neither do our customers, he's saying. So the idea of basically every year a massive hike around your premium, um, this needs to stop apparently. But uh, sort of, I'm not really sure how he's going to do that without completely taking a leg out of the insurance market, really. Um, if this isn't what they're going to be doing, how are they going to be moving him towards it? If I was all of his shareholders, I'd be slightly freaking out on this one because it's where most of the money's being made in insurance. So yeah, it sounds like I'm just going to lop off half of my revenue. I'm doing it for my customers, but if I'm shareholders, I'm a bit worried about that. But then maybe um, doing the right thing by your customers creates a lot long-term shareholder value if your shareholders are thinking in that way. But a lot of shareholders these days are institutions. They're not you and me. So actually they're thinking, no, I want a bigger dividend and I want it next quarter and you're about to reduce those profits. So there goes your share price. Is It'll that, be the, interesting is that to see. The, the Paul Ryan, US House Representative's view of the insurance, <laughs> centuries-old insurance market? Indeed. Yeah. I, I think it, it's going to be a, like a super interesting one to see how this actually plays out, if I'm honest with you, because I, I think if they do start making these changes, then you know there's an opportunity for them to really sort of change how their business model works. But I think the problem is that the and there's probably some really interesting things here for, for banks and fintech to think about here. You know, we've got the Inviva and likes of insurance companies played really nicely with comparison markets and uh, you know compare the market and money supermarket and all of the kind of aggregators in this space until the point where all of the profitability was kind of being eked out of the market. Um, you know fintech playing with banking uh, or banking playing with fintech, depending on your perspective on that. Then uh, you know there might be a lot of laterals for them to um, you know see the crash coming. It's going to be interesting to watch this one for sure, without question. Um, we will follow this as InsurTech um, continues to grow and grow as, as an area. And I think um, if the business model is changing, we've done a lot on business models uh, on, on this show, then to get ahead of that could be a stitch in time. But will will his shareholders stick with it? Alrighty, um, Aidan, there's a story here on Recode. Uh, Square is rolling out its first debit card. They want to get physical, it seems. Yeah, Jason Del Rey over at Recode. Um, I think we could say that this story is, um, you know, Jack Dorsey coming from Monzo in the UK. No. Um, <laughs> but basically, they have launched a bit of plastic prepaid card. It's a novel idea, isn't it? Uh, linked to their Square Cash uh, money transfer service. Is this not them just broadening their product portfolio, really? Obviously, Square as an acquirer. Someday they'll be a real grown-up bank. (laughs) Let's let's take a step back, right? So, I mean, I really don't believe in this divide between fintechs and banks. I think at the end of the day, we have to start from the consumer and think about what the consumer is really after. So what the Square guys are saying is, you know, most people are still using cards to spend their money. And if... Uh, Ten minutes ago, you said cards were the old world. They are the old <laughs> world, but Square are already in the new world to some extent, right? And now they're saying, hold on, we can use all of that presence and reach to essentially offer a physical product. And that's if that's what the consumer wants, then that's what they should do in the interim. Right, so we kind of have to start with the consumer. I think it's an interesting one. They're, they're like continually, we're seeing these organizations like going digital and then like backing into like the old world, like Amazon you know? opening stores. But I, but I think you're, I think you're, I think your point, Ajay's point, is perfect. It's you know there, there's there's there are the digital dreams, and then there's how 
you know, grandma on the street is going to use things. And sometimes you have to offer the Give car. Give the consumer what the consumer wants. <laughs> but but would, would, like, grandma on the street want a card from Square? Like, would grandma know what Square is? Oh, and I mean? I'm guessing that's not the who they're targeting, right? This is going after a slightly different market. This is looking at, all right, so you're kind of maybe okay, using Okay, okay, the, the 28-year-old in Sheffield who doesn't know all the fun whoa, stuff whoa, at whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> But here's the thing. If, if, if a grandma does decide to use this square... <laughs> racists. Racists. <laughs> I can't say that on the podcast. <laughs> All <laughs> you people came from Nano. If only I knew which little backwoods US town you came from. <laughs> No, I think this is an interesting one. Uh, we've seen um, in recent stories in recent weeks with people moving more and more into peer-to-peer, and I think Apple were doing something on last week's show with them wanting to do peer-to-peer payments with a debit card backed up on uh, Visa's V.me platform. Uh, it seems like that prepaid card piece is something that a lot of the technology providers are thinking, oh, we could get into this. And as I said on last week's show, Google Wallet tried this four or five years ago. I don't know that the business model works. Yeah, see, the problem is that the cost structure for some of these digital and physical businesses might be fundamentally different. So while, I mean, if you think about it, right, so it's really hard for some of the physical businesses to launch a digital business because the capabilities, assets and systems, and now I'm being a bit theoretical here, are completely different. The same thing works the other way around. If you're a purely digital business with a digital platform, it's like Netflix shipping DVDs. It's a completely different cost structure. You want to do it? I'm not sure. And this is an idea. It's kind of like they've gone from backwards. They've gone to shipping DVDs from having a digital platform. But they're doing that because there's a distribution problem in that when I send you money on Square Cash, for you to then onward spend that is pretty difficult. If I give you a card, you can spend that quite easy if it's in your Square Cash account. But the problem with prepaid has always been that the cost of issuing the cards is really, really high. So the business case doesn't make sense unless you're really making a lot of uh, money somewhere else, somewhere else in the deal. So I don't know that this will stack up for the same reason that Google Wallet folded, for the same reason can, that a lot of the profit's not there. Can I be a bit curmudgeon and I can just say, you, you, got, you guys have plied me with pints of wine, so Ooh. I do apologize to your audience. This but, is about um, to get fun then. You know <laughs> <laughs> well, Simon already said fuck, so oh, yeah. I'm really glad. There that we go. Um, so I, there is this, like I'm talking as a consumer now, not as a fintech person and the the standards in how you use cards and cash so i took a flight to malta on ba and they now charge for food crazy um, it's m&s food yeah i know it's good food i get it i get it um and, and they, they said they made an announcement you can only pay by card that's fine here's my card i flew back on air malta they had the food and i handed my card and said no we only take cash i don't have any cash on me and well, i want some Flipping standards. <laughs> that's Boston for you. That's where I'm from. Thank um, you, Liz. <laughs> why? I mean, that's what pisses me off. Yeah, I get it. The, the fact that everybody's having to implement payments in different ways for these different scenarios and you're longing for that Uber-like experience, the Amazon one-click experience where it just gets out of the way. I want to do a thing. I don't want to think about paying. That's get exactly out of my right. way. You don't do... You do payments because you're doing something else, right? You do banking because you want to do a tonic and a bag of crisps, okay? Absolutely right. I think as well, I mean, if you look at just like the basic peer-to-peer initiatives amongst the banks, you look at Pam versus Swish. I mean, in Sweden, Swish, all the banks came together. There was one standard way to have a peer-to-peer payment, like a beautiful process. And then you look at Payam, and it was like everyone was branding it differently. So, and the, so the Swedish 
hired some service designers and built it properly, whereas it was built by yeah, and engineers PM and was sort of the the UK Payments Council and Faster Payments trying to get together and do something and and by standards and slowly. They were so mad. Yeah, so you got to be. <laughs> you don't want to create standards too quickly, as in you want the standards to sort of compete and evolve and and arrive, as opposed to just uh, agreeing on a standard that might be suboptimal. Cool. Well, we could better move on because we could talk about this one all day, I'm sure. Alrighty, Aidan, there's a story here in Finextra. Starling opens a payment services unit. Is, is that unit something uh, that's like a special ops unit? And I'm not sure if it's like a physical unit or a kitchen unit. I don't know, but it's another payment story. I'm sorry, Liz. Uh, but I think this is an interesting one. Again, this is uh, basically Starling, you know, taking their faster payments agreements and sticking an API on it. Letting people build on top of that infrastructure, which is... If you like it, you should have put an API on it. <laughs> <laughs> you knew you were getting one inside. Oh, that's what I hate you. I'm not happy right now. <laughs> yes. And we have a name. If, if, if Beyonce's listening and she wants to be a guest on the show, that would be fantastic. Um, You're going on the whiteboard. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I don't want to say any more than that, really. It, it's an API to fast payments it's simple it's nice it's it's great and i i want to say a couple of things about starling they i tweeted the other day that they feel like they're really hitting their stride they're launching they're launching they're launching they're launching this is one thing and they've also you know they've got their app their beta app into the app stores this week their you know invite codes are going out they're ramping up they're ramping up and the interfaces we've had a good look at them on our pulse products megan yeah we have um so i think it was this week it's kind of it's still in beta but it's available to anyone which is quite nice so we actually um applied for the starling account and everything and it was super 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 slick i mean within a few minutes and i mean there are some things in terms of like the ui and the customer experience that are just kind of like that's a bit different i don't really know if i like that or not in terms of navigation and whatnot I like purple, so I'm very happy with the app. But yeah, no, I think that it's a great start for them. It feels like they're doing everything right at this point from a strategy standpoint. And it feels like the kind of stuff that um, if I was still working in a product team in in a bank, the stuff I'd be screaming that we need to do, they're kind of doing it. But what's going to be interesting now is because this is like acid test moment, right? This is the stuff that we've been saying you should be doing for a while. Let's see if they get adoption because, and and I really hope they do. I really Uh, hope they do. I think we've heard that they've got like 40 odd thousand on the wait list so that's you know that's a decent number of customers if they can convert those that's a damn good start you know they've they've taken a different model to obviously monzo we talked about launch get something out whereas they've taken a few years built a product but now they are really rolling stuff out at pace so yeah i well I, done. I i was concerned i'll be on no lie you know i was concerned about starling because I, I heard Anne sort of give pretty much the same presentation about 40 times over the course of about 10 months and and I was just no and she and it was great it's a brilliant presentation but I was just like I want to see it and then I kind of understand it and I sort of believe it and I think now they're sort of really getting to kind of back it up with like actual action which is which is nice and actually the like the branding how they've kind of put stuff it feels more mainstream I'll be honest, like it kind of feels like it has the ability to kind of scale a little bit more, which is really exciting. So, um, you know, having a few big challenger banks in the UK and, and really sort of starting to stretch their legs is really exciting to me. And we have actually had a chat with Julian Sawyer, the COO of Starling Bank, to find out a bit more about these two news items and if they've got anything else coming down the pipe soon. Thank you very much, Julian Sawyer, COO of Starling Bank, for joining us today. Hi, Aidan. Thank you. Uh, well, uh, quite a few things to talk about, really. You guys, uh, I think I tweeted out this week, you guys are really hitting your stride and uh, delivery after delivery after delivery. This week, we'd really like to talk about your faster payment service API that uh, launched this week. 
Yeah, sure. Well, we started um, uh, joining, well, we joined Faster Payments in January this year. And what we realized straight after that is there's an awful lot of people who are not serviced by the Faster Payment scheme directly. You know, there's, there's 15 organizations who are part of Faster Payments, there's 400 odd banks, 2000 odd plus fintechs. And we think we can do something different than the other uh, players who are offering sponsorship services into Faster Payments. And the real issue is around real-time payments. That's what everybody wants. And yet, uh, there is no way of doing that in an indirect agency model. And with our open APIs, we have created a business and a proposition that enables exactly that, the uh, facility or the ability of offering real-time payments um, into Faster Payments is actually uh, pretty amazing. The second part to this is the speed or the time that it takes to onboard a new prospect. We're talking weeks, not months, and I think that becomes really important. So when an organization does want to start making payments, real-time payments, then we can onboard them in about a 12-week process. And that becomes uh, incredibly easy to do with our APIs. Um, and, and therefore, organizations will be able to onboard and use, use payments pretty quickly. So, you know, I guess it's just another piece in your platform banking strategy. Absolutely, yes. I mean, we've, we've spent the last couple of years obviously getting our banking license, but also building all the infrastructure into the UK payment systems. Uh, and we are in a position now that we can now le- leverage that for the benefit of consumers and for other organizations. And I guess the other thing to talk about is uh, I know you're currently in beta, but you've just kind of widened that beta massively. And now the app is in the app stores and invite codes are going to people on the waiting list. Yes, it's a very exciting week for us to launch payment services and also into both the Apple and the Android uh, app stores at the same time. Um, and uh, we are, as, as you say, we're on board boarding customers every day now. That's fantastic. Uh, and uh how are you, are you getting through the wait list well? I mean, I think I had an email that said I had to wait a week and then I got another email a few days later saying it was ready to go. So, uh, Yep, we're, we're working through that. What we don't want to do is, is over-promise. Um, so we're just trying to manage expectations. But yes, we are working through at, at quite a speed at the moment, which is great. That's great to hear. And finally, we've uh, just kind of breaking news, really, as I speak to you. I know that uh, a competitor of yours kind of announced that they were backing away from some of their public API work, whereas you've just posted a nice article on your blog just restating your, your you know, that you, you guys are really going for it. API first. There's a great line in here. We don't want to wait until PSD2 compliance uh, is here. We want, we want to be out there now and getting our APIs in, in front of people. So, you know, there's a great line saying simply keeping up with compliance and forced regulation is not innovation. So that's a, a, a bold... Bold statement to be making on a Friday afternoon. Indeed, indeed. I mean, we started the bank being PSD2 compliant. We have APIs. We're using APIs internally within the bank. So for us, it's a natural extension to be able to offer APIs to to third parties. And part of our open API and also our marketplace enables other companies to be able to write some amazing software um, to to integrate on, onto our platform. And we had a hackathon last last month, which was the first one across across the banking world to go into live current accounts within within the UK. Um, and just going back to what we talked about at the beginning, the Starling Payment Services is based on the same APIs. So this is just this is part of what we've done right from day one is, is created an API driven bank and, and therefore we should be able to p- publish this into the open market. 
Well, it's great to see that you guys, like I say, are, are hitting your stride. You're getting stuff out there every week. Uh, maybe we'll be on a, you know, on a call with you again next week to find out about more updates. Thank you, Aidan. Appreciate the time today. Thank you. Thanks very much, Julian. All right. Thank you very much, Julian. We've got the last story of the day here. There's one in Reuters, a top French bank chief, a attacks no frills rivals for freeloading. Uh, so this is um, this is Philippe Barasek, who is the chief exec of Credit Agricole, and he's saying, I think it's time for the authorities to realise that they cannot allow players who offer services where they do not pay for the infrastructure to get settled in. You, I find it no, extremely... You, you're going to have to do a French accent when no. you do this one. <laughs> I think the analogy doesn't work. <laughs> we can go an Indian-French accent. Well, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> he goes on to say, I find it extremely destructive for the system to accept that players could sell very cheap banking cards and in the end shoulder no infrastructure cost. And I got to say, I'm in two minds about this one. I kind of get it in that you're after PSD2. How dare you people, we worked hard and you're just getting in for free. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's the same as like the, the telcos 10 years ago. It's right? the baby belt argument. Yeah, yeah. It's you guys are using our infrastructure and we're not able to capture any of the value of you using our infrastructure but then reverse that become a good platform company and you would capture a lot more of that value but they don't seem to be thinking that way and and i can see them looking at the spreadsheets where they're going to lose revenue and they can see how they're going to lose customer um, access and all of that kind of stuff but as david often but says about this stuff think this stuff up themselves this is this is the problem i have with traditional banks com- complaining about the new fintechs is why don't you think up this shit yourself Okay, you're a black cab driver in London and you're pissed off at Uber. Why don't you think up this yourself? Yeah, why are you charging twice as much, right? And there's a spokesman here in this article from uh, Orange Bank and they have a full banking license and their own infrastructure. So they're kind of going, hey, well, we're building infrastructure. If I'm a Starling and a Monzo as well and and that sort of challenger who's building infrastructure, I'm kind of like, it's not just fintechs building on top of your infrastructure and why not think of a way to to profit from it? Um, There's a really great one here from... um, George Bevis, who we've had on the show a number of times, who's the chief executive of Tide. Um, so they're offering small business bank accounts. And he goes, it's nonsense for incumbent banks to moan about new players using infrastructure that was built decades ago. Passing electrons between banks is not something that banks can claim is difficult for which they should be charging well, expensive think, prices to more, do. More importantly, banks have had it so good for so long, right? We've had this infrastructure for years and we've monetized, I'm, I'm speaking like a banker, but we've monetized it. We've had a, all this access, monopoly access, oligopoly access to consumers now it's time to open it up so and it's time for us to compete i think i think that's the thing the whole thing reads like it's not fair <laughs> and, like, oh. um, and, and i think that's the sad thing yeah, on this one competitive but I, I have to say like on the back of the jess daly one that we had you know the story last week from barclay ceo you know they've done exactly the same on this I, like i guarantee there's going to be like 400 people ranting about this on linkedin because it's like really provocative headline picture of him looking like an evil villain and nobody else is re- nobody else is reading anything other than just rant on LinkedIn so I'm going to come and find you people and I will talk you into sense on this one so. but but any technology and I'm going to go back I'm going to go way back in fintech history okay. here so if you look at the old uh, big investment banks offering broker research and there uh-huh. used to be certain you know institutional investors that got first yeah. call and then First Call was launched by Thomson and Reuters. And all of a sudden, everyone got stuff at the same time. Technology can be a leveler. You know, that old world, that old old boys network, the old yes. world, you know, that it's got to be dismantled. The consumer Sorry, must be. It, it, it does. Right. But people like 
unfair advantages. That's that's the thing. <laughs> of course, like businesses are always based on unfair advantages, right? And uh, and these guys really. Uh, you know, to your point, Ajit, it's be, like do they? they don't have to be. You know, the banks just haven't created more value than the, than they've extracted. Well, see, and that's uh, why people. I, I can't remember the economist who said this, but the goal of every business, every successful business, is to create a monopoly, right? Now, it's the goal of the regulators and but then other that ultimately destroys them. That's the standard oil absolutely. like story. As- absolutely, and baby bells. So you and, create yeah. a monopoly, and then you get destroyed, and then this consolidation and fragmentation, and we're back to the circle. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> circle of life. Well, um, it, we need that, the wheel of fortune. It's it is it is that whole thing. It's like you get big enough to spend enough money on building the walls around you and then actually unfortunately the you know you spend too much time building the walls and you're not competitive sort of, anymore exactly and that's that's the problem it's kind of like where every big company goes right you you kind of go from um aristocracy where you've kind of been this this fantastically i mean where facebook are right now they're in this they're in this amazing place they've they've achieved the massive and then they drop into bureaucracy and you know you're in bureaucracy when there's a million people, people that can killing say, their children I mean, on a live million video people can say no site. but you don't know who can say yes clay christensen wrote books about this stuff right mm. innovators still a man and so on so at the end of the day, what happens is that these businesses get logged into a way of doing business. They get logged into a culture, a cost structure, and so on and so forth. But the consumer needs shift. The consumer needs, needs have shifted, and it's time for the banks to respond. It's really not that complicated. I think Lawrence Wintermeyer puts this really well, who's the, you know, the CEO of Innovate Finance, as we know. He, he says that the low-cost airlines didn't put the national carriers out of business, but did force them to change their business and, and become yeah, more Yes, so you now have to pay for M&S food on BA. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you can't use cards and God damn it! I'm not in favor of it. Change is not always good. Change is not always good. As long as it's tracked on a blockchain. Alrighty, um, so that's the last story this week. Um, Thank you very much uh, for being with us today, Liz and Ajit. Um, Thank you very much to you, uh, our good audience, for listening. If you haven't already, check out our interview with Gary Vaynerchuk. And if you want to feel the full force of Gary's persuasion, head on over to our YouTube channel for a different look at the interview. If you like what you've heard here, subscribe to our podcast and please leave us a review on iTunes. Tell some friends. We love reading the reviews and we love hearing about what you think about the show. That's all for now. Thank you. Thank you.